Witchy Ways is a podcast about the journey to unlock the forgotten ways of being in a world that's long taught us to be separated from our bodies, our souls, the world around us, and the other than humans that we share it with. Welcome. I'm your host, Jacqueline Freeman. So this morning... um my, my agenda today is to go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, um, and lay some tobacco down, and, um, and to go to Hull, Massachusetts, um, where one of my ancestresses landed um, in the 1600s. So, um, not wanting to make the same mistake that I did in North Carolina and Virginia, um, or even along Alabama, uh, somewhere in the Southeast, right? I picked up this, um, this like snake thing that was devouring me. Um, and it was intergenerational and I picked it up from the land and it was a warning to try to scare me. Um, so this morning, uh, I went into meditation and, um, you know, fortified my boundaries and protection and then called uh, my ancestral guides and and asked them for their blessing today and how I could fully honor and recognize the troublesome history that has happened in these places while also honoring my ancestral lines. So um, I was led to make a bundle with corn and beans because the pilgrims at or this and the settlers rather at Plymouth um, excavated uh, Wampanoag burial sites and took corn and beans that had been buried with people and planted them themselves um, so they told me to make a bundle with corn and beans and I put a sage leaf in there and some honey and um, saged the bundle and my friend and I prayed over it and it has been riding in my grandmother spider woman offering dish on the way here this morning. Um, so I've just arrived at Plymouth Plantation which is like a reconstruction of the settlement and um, I'm gonna go through that this morning and then find the place where I'm led to bury this bundle um, and return it to the earth uh, is a very humble way of recognizing what happened and to make amends. So the visit at Plymouth Plantation was really interesting. Um, really brought on all the feels <laughs> a lot of different ways. So uh, this is away from Plymouth Center, 
Um, it's a living history museum. So um, you come in and there are some exhibits and they have a film. And then you go first to the Wampanoag home site, which has um, like a cooking structure and they have a model of like a summer home that would have been a little closer to the water. And then the winter home would be away from the coast um, a couple of miles. So the summer homes were, um, had a, they were kind of a dome structure and they had a, that would have been single family homes. And um, they wove mats together of uh, pussy willows or cattails as they call them there, um, of the cattail stems and they would make these mats and um, they would have two layers and that would be the summer home. It's sort of a round structure. They did uh, enter in through the east and would move clockwise around the fire. Um, when they packed up to go towards their winter home, which was more like a long house and covered with bark, um, like sheaths of bark from around the trees um, that would be a multi-family home so that way they can sort of like pull their resources um, stay warm right have a few more people around to stay warm and um, when they left for the winter they would take the mats off of the summer homes and um, the mat that had been on the outside um, and thus, you know, taken the most beating with the, um, the weather and things like that would be used to line um, a pit that they would dig and um, they would put the harvest in that pit to hold them. So they would take what they needed for the winter, um, but there would be dried things that they would bury wrapped in these mats so that they could use them when they came back in the spring. So that way it's uh, seeds, corn, bean, things like this that they can um, use for food as well as planting back in the spring. So they're not going to haul everything two or three miles inland uh, when they need to bring it back in the spring anyway. So they would use the outside mat to wrap that and line the hole. Um, and one of the sources I had read had said that uh, when the pilgrims landed, the settlers landed, they had uh, dug up burial sites and gotten corn and beans and used it. Um, but there at the museum, they were saying that this was a traditional practice um, to just store food for the uh, store food for the winter. Um, so not quite the violation that I had initially thought. Um, I did take a bundle with me that had um, corn and beans because I asked my ancestors, as, as you heard in the last um, segment, and I had added a sage leaf and um, put some honey in there. So I offered that um, outside of the plantation entrance um, and I had tobacco in my pocket uh, with me while I was there. So not quite the um, violation of digging up a winter store as it would have been um, disturbing graves to get. So I'm not really sure which one is really what happened, but um, at any rate, 
uh, they would they would use the outside mat to to line the line the pits with and cover the food, and then the inside mat would get rolled up and taken um, to the winter home with them. And then during the winter, because um, in the fall the pussy willow they would harvest the f- pussy willows and let them draw dry out, and then over the winter they would sew another mat. And the mat that had been on the inside the year before would be the outside mat the year after. Um, so they're just sort of like moving in that cycle with that. Um, there was a fellow at uh, one of the fire sites um, that was, am I remembering this correctly, Hollywood Sapani. Um, from North Carolina, Virginia, actually. Um, he's married to a Wampanoag woman, but um, which is why he's living there now. But it was really interesting to hear a little bit about his tribe. And I was really grateful that he was there because I, um, North Carolina, I didn't feel like I got to do what I wanted and needed to do there. I felt like the ants chased me off the land. Um, I couldn't stand anywhere. Um, they were all over that burial ground. So I, I wasn't able to stand and really like try to listen and see if I had any ancestors that were buried there. Um, since the ancestor that I know I came from left quite early. Um, so I didn't know who else, you know, was there. And I didn't get a chance, I couldn't stand still enough to listen because the ants just chased me away. So there was this sort of feeling of unfinished. Um, and it's quite possible also that that's the area where I picked up the sort of snake entity that started like working its way up me and eat me up to scare me and warn me. But um, so I was really grateful that this man uh, was there and I asked him if I could give him some tobacco for the fire and explained, um, you know, that I'm on this sort of ancestral truth and reconciliation tour and just wanted to bear witness. And um, so that I was really grateful for that. And he accepted the tobacco and I saw him whispering a prayer into it. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for that. It really meant a lot to me. And, um, I just, I stay in this place of wonder and amazement at how these things line up. Um, and then I think maybe it's a little silly (laughs) because how else would it be when the ancestors are my tour guides, you know? But it meant a lot to me to be in this space and realize that um, if I'm moving forward and constantly checking my intentions and staying in dialogue and working to keep my heart open, that even though there have been so many times on this trip that I felt like I've missed an opportunity or my timing wasn't quite right, you know, I mean, this has just been part of it. That and we talked about this in the interview with um, Sarah Jolina, 
this kind of arrogance and thinking that we can just, I'm not flying into an area, but I'm still moving very quickly, you know. And there have been many times that things are closed or, um, you know, it just seems like the timing's off. And so it, um, it really means a lot to me that I didn't lose that, that I can still stitch back and pick that little piece up. And I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful for that and those opportunities. Um, and then, um, and like in both in the summer home and the, um, the winter home, they had bare skins. Um, just one, I mean, it, you know, it was one bare skin amongst many other skins, um, that were sort of lining the benches around the fire and man, it was, <laughs> it took everything I had not to pick that skin up and wrap it around my shoulders. It was really, I did reach down and touch it, but, um, uh, bears, there's a lot of bear medicine on my mother's mother's line and, um, grandmother Calais that, that is my guide on that line, um, turns into a bear here and there. And, um, during one of the experiences or communions that I've had with them, um, they did put a bear skin on me, right? It was almost like, um, like a, an Irish version of, uh, Luke Skywalker crawling into that, um, into that creature, you know, um, but I just kind of crawled inside of the bear, um, and, and felt what it was like on the inside, so to speak. Um, so it was, it kind of took everything in me not to pick those bare skins up and put them around my shoulders, but, um, it was definitely this place of resonance and seeing that, you know, I think once colonized European cultures spent a lot of time, um, really trying to distinguish themselves from each other, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, honestly, it's one of the things that I've noticed too, that it was really the wealthy that did that. Because if you're, if you're looking at European folk cultures, um, there may have been national borders between Holland and Germany, for example. But if you're looking in the areas that are now like Friesland's, uh, Provincie Groningen in the Netherlands, um, the northern provinces of uh, Germany around, you know, like Hamburg and uh, Bremerhaven, Bremer, these kind of places. Um, th these are different nations now, but, but that region, um, the folk traditions in that region are incredibly similar um, and so when it comes to the folk, I mean, obviously climates make a difference in how a people express themselves and 
and what they do. But if you're in places with similar climate, then then there's much more overlap and similarity than there is difference. Um, and it really was the sort of European, like post-Roman colonization, European wealth um, that really worked hard to distinguish themselves. And, um, and so it's in these moments of standing in this Wampanoag uh, summer hut that it can really see the similarities, even though it's a continent away, right? And centuries, millennia away, really, since my own people were in that place of harmony, uh, recognizing themselves fully as a part of nature instead of seeing nature as being something separate, that that schizophrenia hadn't been introduced yet. And there's so many similarities, right? Like the baskets hanging from the walls, the, uh, the, the, the gathering pouches, the, you know, there's just so many of these tools that would have been a part of daily life for any indigenous culture. Um, and the differences perhaps show up in the native trees and animals that are nearby that are used for tools and things like that as well. Um, so there was a deep resonance there. And then, um, the next, then you come into the art center, uh, which I waited until later to go through, um, which I was grateful for. I needed the air conditioning. I was really starting to overheat, but, um, came to the English site. Ooh, um, you know, my prayer has been, instead of sort of like, I want to believe, help me with my disbelief, it's been more, um, I want to be compassionate, help me with my judgment. Um, and it's a prayer I'm having to say a lot. Um, and uh, still having to say it when I'm thinking about what happened um, and the experiences of the English site. So, um the, they have people that are trained that are playing roles of uh, settlers that lived there. So um, there's an institute where they train them and uh, they really submerse themselves in the history, um, both here and before they came here. And um, I mean, it's really well done. They, they do a great job of really taking on these characters and speaking from that perspective. Um, and it is really shocking to hear some of the things that they say. Uh, even though I know, you know, that's, that's how they would have seen it then. Um, I'm glad I've done a lot of work because I think me from 10 years ago probably would have argued or been visibly really angry and I, I don't know how they how the actors as people would deal with that. Do you know what I mean? But um, one of the first ladies that I spoke with um, was uh, in her kitchen preparing a salad for lunch. And so I see her, you know, pulling these leaves off. And I asked her what she was working with. And, um, you know, it was marjoram and these kinds of things. And I was like, oh, are, are these plants that you found here? Or 
um, did you bring them with you? And she had brought the seeds with her. And um, she goes on to talk about how God had sent a plague to those parts to clear the land for them and how providential it was and what a blessing. I, I know this is how they would have seen it. And it, it makes me think of, there's a line from a Tori Amos song off Scarlet's Walk that says, trail of tears and amens. Greed is the gift for the sons of sons. Here are prayers of the wampum. So it was difficult to swallow and kind of took my breath away. And as I talked to others, you know, there was one woman. Um, so this group of settlers, the ones that came over on the Mayflower, um, they had been in Leiden in the Netherlands for about 10 years. So that was really striking. Uh, I didn't live in Leiden. Uh, I had kind of an aversion to Leiden, actually, which now perhaps makes a little more sense. But um, I w they were there almost 10 years. I was in the Netherlands for almost 10 years. So, uh, so that was really a little interesting overlay. Um, but they had, they had left England um, because they were being persecuted religiously. And they went to, they went to the Netherlands to, to be able to practice. Um, and one of the fellows had told me that they, you know, they left Holland because uh, some of the children were becoming too Dutch. They were getting too... Um, they were assimilating a little too much and they didn't like that. He didn't really go into what that meant. Um, I didn't think to ask him what that meant. Um, and then there was another uh, house that I went into that was considerably larger than um, the other houses. And the furnishings and furniture, you know, the furnishings and, and linens and carpets and things that were there were much finer than they had been in some of the other houses. And um, so I asked if the furnishings were Dutch. And uh, the, <laughs> the woman there replied, oh, yes, uh, these are Dutch, but we're English, so you needn't be afeard, right? <laughs> we're, we're a good English, this is a good English colony. There are no Dutch here. Um, and so it was really interesting, right? This, like, this fear. I mean, it really drove so much of their mindset and their attitude, which, you know, which is really common for fundamentalist groups. Um, I, I don't think it's possible to be a f to, to have a fundamentalist interpretation of any religion 
if you don't have a lot of fear working through that, right? It, these sort of fundamentalist uh, interpretations of whatever religion I've yet to run across, fundamentalist of any stripe, um, that aren't very fear-based, that don't see, you know, they, they see things in this very black and white kind of way, it's good or bad. Um, they're very exclusionary, so there's a lot of fear about interacting with people that are not of their stripe. Um, and it also seems like the more interaction possibility there is for working with another group, the more kind of mythology they make up to demonize the other group so that they stay away. Right. The more tempting the interaction is, the more they have to build something around it to make it repulsive. Um, so it was fascinating. And um, where I'd been staying in Fall River, um, my friend was reading um, Bessel van der Kolk's uh, the Body Keeps the Score, which is a book about how the body holds on to trauma and the impact of trauma on the on the brain and body. And um, it's really fantastic work. So if you have any interest in that whatsoever um, or any experience with that, then I would highly recommend it. And um, so every morning, you know, over coffee, we would have these conversations about what she'd read the night before and so having this dialogue about the way we carry trauma and how it impacts the way we frame our world, the way we view our world, the way we make decisions, um, carrying this as I interact with this, these English colonialists, the Puritans, does help me in my, I want to have compassion, help me in my judgment. Because it's so very clear that they're moving in this trauma response, right? And that trauma is passed down from generation to generation. So, so even if the children had been born in the Netherlands, and not experience that level of persecution. They've been in a space where they are allowed to practice how they want to. Their parents were persecuted to such a degree that they left their home country, their homeland, and went to a place where they don't speak the language and were foreigners in order to be able to, to live their lives the way they wanted to. So they're going to be carrying, I mean, that's a trauma, and they're going to be carrying that. Um, and that kind of, it's us against the world, um, is a trauma response. It's also a, uh, something that perpetrators will do a lot, right? They create this us against the world kind of bubble to isolate you. And of course that, you know, there's all, they're all together. They're all woven together, trauma responses. And I mean, and perpetrator like sort of MOs, right? Um, 
there's probably been some trauma to create a perpetrator in the first place. Um, so in thinking about how they saw things through that lens of responses to trauma, then it becomes more human. And I mean, the things that happened are really terrible, but the motivations become less monstrous. It's hard to take all of this in. I tell people all the time that their heart is big enough to hold these different emotions. I know that in the spaces where our hearts expand, there's this narrowness that happens before, this squeezing and constriction that we often don't feel like we can navigate But if we just hold on to the light and keep moving forward, we come into the space, it's open. And it's times like this that I have to really hold on to the intellectual idea of that. Because when you're passing through the constriction, it's really hard to remember. I really am having to move on faith right now that my heart is big enough to hold that these people were traumatized. And these, like a millennia of traumatization, right? A millennia of being separated from nature. Of being told that this planet is a curse. Of being told that our bodies are corrupt. A millennia of this. Of forced conversions to Christianity. A millennia of trying to push down the old ways and the old understandings. And using this new religion to do it. A millennia of that and all the trauma of that being passed down and looking at it that way it makes sense that they would come out with this really twisted view that made them afraid of absolutely everything and no wonder the box was so small right I mean when you're working to maintain a disconnection from the world around you, the box becomes really, really small that you can live in. And no wonder that Massachusetts had so many witch burnings, right? No wonder 
no wonder anybody not fitting in that box is going to become suspect. And I, I feel like on some kind of soul level, like they knew, you know, how fragile this thing was that they built, they were living in and any influence could topple it. Any stirring. I mean, it was a house of cards. But my God, the damage we can do in our unhealed places, my God. To be so totally severed from any kind of empathy and understanding that Like there'd been a 90, 95%. I mean, basically almost complete total genocide just from diseases that swept up and down the coast after contact with European traders. To be in a space where life is a zero-sum game and be okay with, you know, like you're on some sports team or something and you winning is all that matters. That it was quite providential that a plague, God sent a plague there. I mean, it just, oh, it's so hard. To process all of it. But also these glimmers of the old ways, the way the women tended their gardens, the way they harvested things at certain moons or when certain constellations were evident. These little tiny glimmers were still there, you know. But certainly that nature is something that you, not something you're a part of, but something you beat back. Not something you want to live close to, but something you want to remove as far as possible. Not something that's living and breathing, but a resource to use. I'm glad that I went. I'm glad I had the conversations. Sometimes I wish I'd had a few more. Um, 
though the ones I had can feel hard enough to process as is. One of the fellows that I talked to, uh, he and his father had come early to set things up. I'm assuming to build the house and things like this and then sent for his mother and sisters uh, later. They were supposed to come like a year later and it ended up being three because there were so many problems with ships uh, breaking down. Uh, the, the ship that his sisters and mother came on unmasted like two or three times so it kept getting sent back. Um... And he was talking about how grateful he was when his mother and sisters finally arrived because they were very close to starving. And he said it wasn't because, um, you know, they knew how to grow and they knew how to cook, but he said the men didn't know how to balance the humors. And so only the women knew how to cook in a way and harvest in a way that would balance the humors. And without that knowledge, they were very close to starving because they didn't um, feed themselves in a balanced way. So it was interesting to see these shimmers of light of the recognition for the feminine and the connection to larger patterns and natural cycles to see the space where the women are still the healers even in this lockdown fundamentalist frame we can still find these ways. But, you know, we know now that within a hundred years, they were probably burning those same women, right? It was the women who healed that were hung or burned or drowned. as the colonialism that had begun at the turn of the millennium was carried to further fruition in the burning times. My prayer is that we're able to unravel the fear, loosen its grip on our hearts and minds, even now, even still, and certainly that we would heal these traumas.
heal these traumas that close down our hearts and minds that put us in the survivalist mode that make us afraid of so many things and that push us to a place of I mean, there's an egotism in that, right? When you're in a place of trauma and in desperate need of healing, it is naturally, their focus is going to be on the self because you need to heal. To seclude and lick the wounds, right? And once the healing has been done, then you can come out and join the group again. And then if we're staying in these places of wounded creatures that are that much more vicious for fear of being wounded again or attacked while we're vulnerable, Suddenly, so much of history makes sense, right? May we continue the work and heal the trauma, flip all these epigenetic switches so that our children aren't carrying them and we'll truly have a fresh slate. Hmm. May it be so. Blessed be. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks for listening. If you're not already, subscribe to the podcast. That way you can get episodes as soon as they're released. If you'd like more information about my van build or travels to get my feet in soil to hear what she has to say, then go on over to www.witchyways.com. That's spelled with a Y instead of an I. And uh, got to be weird and wild about it, you know. So may your heart, mind, eyes, ears, and life be open to the magic and connection that surrounds us all the time. Blessed be.